welcome to another edition of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Ruppold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. I ask that you please share the show, like the show, give thumbs up, review, stars, uh, whatever the case may be. All those help to get the message out to more people. I also appreciate you for supporting the show. Uh, those of you who have signed up on Patreon.com, just go to Governed by God if you haven't done so yet and please become a supporter. Uh, all of that helps to keep the lights on, so for those of you who have done that already, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Now, with that said, I wanted to continue part two of our discussion on theonomy, also known as God's Law. Last episode, we looked at a podcast that was given by Jonathan Lehman, Mark Dever of, of Nine Marks Ministries, and Basically, we did a little bit of a, of a critique or a review of certain portions of that podcast on the issue of theonomy and some of the criticisms that they were offering to uh, what theonomy is uh, and offered a response to that. Last time, I also said there was another podcast that I wanted to look at, and that's what we're going to be tackling today. So uh, the podcast that we're going to be reviewing today is is was aired by the White Horse Inn. I... I subscribe to that podcast. It's a very good podcast. I've listened to them for years. I greatly respect uh, the hosts of that podcast that are led by uh, Dr. Michael Horton. So again, I appreciate all his work. And I only came across this podcast because I was listening to their upcoming episodes. And this is what I came across. So this particular podcast was episode was aired originally back in 2008. And they re-aired it about a month ago, October 21st, uh, which was convenient. I think they did that on purpose because of the upcoming elections and the political discourse that was going on in our country. And in this episode, we have Michael Horton as the host, and he has three guests on with him, uh, D.G. Hart, Dan Bryant. Dan Bryant had worked for the Department of Justice, and Neil McBride, who's a Democratic strategist. And all of them would, would claim themselves to be Christians, right? And I think that they are. Uh, but it's just a very interesting podcast, and I want to go through some of their criticisms. Uh, I don't know if they specifically talk about the word theonomy. I don't remember. I don't think they do. They talk about simply the relationship between the church and the state, which really is, again, what theonomy is all about. How does God's law apply in the civil sphere? So there's a few uh, parts I want to go over throughout this podcast. I encourage you to listen to the podcast uh, on your own, and I'll provide a link for that in the show notes. But I want to look at a couple clips and offer a response to what I think is some 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 serious errors, some important errors. Um, I wouldn't say they're like heretical errors or anything like that, but I just see a couple disconnects going on there uh, in, their, in some of their thinking and some of the arguments that they make. And then once we're done with that, I want to go through one section of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, because both this podcast and the one that we reviewed last week uh, from from Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman, both both of them offer a certain perspective of what Calvin said, and they quote Calvin, and I think they don't do Calvin justice. Uh, so, anyways, with that said, I want to begin uh, this clip, uh, or the review of this episode, uh, with the following clip. Here we go. I'd love to hear from the three of you is, A, how you understand the doctrine of two kingdoms, 
and B, especially in your cases, Neil and Dan, how you came to identify with each other as friends and fellow Christians and have basically the same theological convictions and yet come to very different public policy conclusions. Well, thank you, Mike. Um, I think it's fair to say with respect to the two kingdoms that this is, as, as I see it, the key distinction if a Christian is to be faithfully involved in the public square and public policy. They are distinct, not uncomplimentary spheres. Uh, God is the author of both, but he has ordained them uh, for distinct purposes. He has ordained the civil magistrate for temporal purposes to restrain wickedness and to promote public order and public justice. Uh, the kingdom of God, on the other hand, the church, uh, is his redemptive community where he is drawing uh, men and women to himself through the person and work of Christ. It is a worshiping community. It has uh, at its essence uh, great spiritual purposes. So they are distinct spheres, and we are called to be citizens in both. And I want to stop there and simply just say amen to that. That is absolutely right. I agree with Dan on all, all points there. Uh, they all have their responsibilities. And really, there's multiple spheres here. There's not just the two. Uh, they're not really going to talk about the family sphere. But yes, there's the family, government, family sphere of influence and their responsibilities. The church has its responsibilities, and so does the state. And they interact with each other, and they complement each other, and they are supposed to support each other, but they do have uh, fundamentally different roles, and it gets a little messy when one tries to take over the role of another. Let's continue. Neil, how about how do you understand it? A bit of self-confession. I spent many years as uh, what I thought was a thoughtful Christian involved in politics and public policy and did not understand, appreciate, and get this notion of the two kingdoms, the two cities that Dan just described, and um, really was sort of liberated from a lot of confusion by finally understanding and grasping the distinct role of the church and temporal government. And, and as Dan said, the, the dual role that the Christians or the dual citizenship that Christians have in both. It, it's probably the case that sort of in the current discussions and, and political debate, if you were to sort of ask the person on the street, they would say that sort of biblical evangelical Christianity is identified with the Republican Party or with conservative political issues. I don't know that that was always true historically, and there certainly are a number of folk on the political left who would describe themselves as, as evangelicals. Um, sort of taken at the worst extreme, both sides have been guilty of attempting to sort of baptize their preferred policy prescriptions around biblical principles and hold those sets of temporal policies out as being uh, Christian policies. And um, I always get nervous at election time when the question is posed, uh, oftentimes explicitly, what would Jesus do in this election? And you can get very different answers from the Christian right or the Christian left. I would say that that both have fallen prey to conflating the two kingdoms and not understanding sort of the distinctive role of one and the other. Okay, so some comments there. Uh, first, he says both sides have been guilty of attempting to baptize their preferred policy prescriptions around biblical principles. Well, yeah, okay, that, that might be true, 
But that does not mean that there is no correct way to look at public policy or that scripture has nothing to say about it at all. So, so that doesn't really answer the question. Okay, yeah, both sides are, are basically trying to claim that they have the moral authority on their side, that they have God on their side. But the question is, what does scripture say? So you always have to look to God's word to see if someone is, is right or wrong. Because, I mean, you could make that argument on anything. You could you could say, well, the uh, the Protestants and the Catholics, they they don't agree on certain things. They, they both say that they have God on their side or authority on their side. Um, so therefore, uh, there can't be a right answer. Just because two groups agree on something, or dis- I'm sorry, disagree on something, does not mean that there is no right answer. It's, it's possible that both sides are wrong. That is true. But it's also possible that one of them is right. They can't both be right, but certainly either one of them is right or both of them are wrong. But the only way to know that is look at Scripture. And then he said later on that both the right and the left have fallen prey to conflating the two kingdoms. And again, I wonder if this is because the episode originally aired about 12 years ago. I do think a lot has changed since then amongst Democrats, predominantly the Democratic Party and the left, uh, but there obviously have been some changes in the right as well. But to say that they conflate the two kingdoms, I mean, I do see this on both sides. It's, it's very true, no doubt, that some people think that the civil sphere is going to be their messiah or that the president is going to save them or usher in the utopia. But it does seem like the desire is stronger on the left to uh, to establish utopia and to call for government to purge sin and redistribute wealth so that everyone is happy and everyone gets what they want. I see that more on the left than the right. Um, the idea of hate speech, the idea of rooting out systemic racism, basically trying to eradicate sin is more of a left policy than a right policy. Because typically on the right, and not everyone, but typically on the right, you're going to have people basically saying that the government should just leave people alone. So anyways, I, I, I just those are a couple of thoughts that I had on that. So let's just uh, continue uh, from there. Gerald? Um, just the only thing I'd add to that on uh, the two kingdoms is um, it seems to me that it's also very compatible with American notions of separation of church and state, which is uh, among some believers a contested idea because it's um, sometimes demonized as something coming from Thomas Jefferson, who we know wasn't a very good Christian and wanted to erect this wall between church and state. But if you think about it much, plenty of Christians benefit from that separation of church and state because it means that the state doesn't tell the church how to run its affairs. So in that sense, it's a blessing, and it's this new era in human history when we no longer have state churches the way we did under the Constantinian order, but we now have voluntary churches, so churches really have the freedom to do what what they need to do. But it also goes the other way, and it means that the church isn't responsible for tax policy, all sorts of other things that go in the other direction. So the separation of church and state, even though it's sometimes decried as a secularist innovation, is actually a real blessing to many Christians in the United States. Mm. Well, okay, so some thoughts there. He talks about the separation of church and state, which I think is a very much important thing, too. I mean, there are two different spheres. They have their own roles. They, they are separate in that regard. Not that they don't interact with each other or affect each other, but he says, first, the state doesn't tell the church how to run its affairs. Well, that's not entirely true. 
I mean, I think I know what he means by that, but if the church is engaged in illegal activities, let's uh, let's say child sacrifice or something like that, then the government should get involved. Okay, so it's not that the government never gets involved in the church and how it runs its affairs. It certainly does. Uh, if people in the church, like the leaders, are are embezzling or whatever, abusing their abusing the congregants or doing illegal activity, things like that. But then he says the church is not responsible for tax policy. Well, that's true because the church is not in office, but the church is responsible to disciple the nations. And some of the people that they will be discipling are probably tax collectors or maybe people in government office. So part of discipleship means you're teaching people how to live out the Christian life in their respective domain, in their job, in their career, wherever they happen to be, right? So if you have some politicians, some representatives or senators or tax collectors in the church, you probably should disciple them in how to manage their affairs, okay? It's really not that different than some of the um, some of the, the teachings that were given in the, New, in the New Testament. So, for example, when, when John the Baptist was approached by, uh, by, by soldiers, they asked him what they should do. And he said, don't, you know, don't extort people and be content with your pay, things like that. And, and the tax collectors asked him, he said, don't take more than what you're supposed to, what you're authorized to. So, okay, so that's tax policy. Right, right there, that's tax policy. Being, being spoken to by God's people to the civil magistrates. When they, when they ask the question, how do, I, how do I live as a civil magistrate, as a, as a believer, as someone who loves God? How do I love my neighbor? Well, stop taking all of his money is, the, is number one. So, yeah, the church doesn't, doesn't have a tax policy per se. Uh, it doesn't actually administer taxes, but it certainly disciples those who do and teaches them uh, how to do that better. So, anyways, uh, let's continue. Dan... And Neil, I find it very intriguing that you guys would come at various policy prescriptions as thoughtful Christians, and yet you guys would come to different conclusions so obviously that you would be on the floor of the Senate representing Republican and Democratic sides respectively. How do you explain that, especially to people who often think that uh, if you are politically conservative, you're theologically conservative. If you're politically liberal, you're theologically liberal. That you couldn't possibly have different policy conclusions coming out of the same theology. I'll offer a couple thoughts, uh, Mike. Uh, One is that I think where Neil and I appreciate this insight that the Reformed confessional tradition provides of the two kingdoms, distinct spheres with distinct competencies, and really trying to sort out what being faithful in each looks like, it frees you up, it frees one up from demanding too much of politics, for imposing disproportionate expectations on politics. And so, you know, as they say, the first thing to remember about politics is that politics isn't the first thing. Neil and I, I think, value it. We take it to be a significant part of our calling We enjoy it. We're kind of students of policy, I think, in various ways. But I think one of the great ties that binds, rooted in this two kingdoms insight, is that 
we have a, a commitment, a desire to see politics kind of cabined properly. As important as it is, it's only but so important. I think the other thing that we, we bring to it is, is a sort of insight that common grace and sort of good brute facts and data and historical case studies, these are the material of being uh, faithful and effective and reasonable and hopefully wise in the public policy sphere. And so uh, I think we have both found ourselves trying to make sure that that's the vernacular, that's the approach uh, that we take and that we encourage those in our, on our teams and in our own communities to take. Okay, I want to stop there for a second. I want to first address the idea that if you're the- theologically liberal, you'll be politically liberal. And and I know that what was said earlier was that that's not necessarily the case. You can be you can be theologically conservative and politically liberal, but I would say the two are very close. Theological liberals see have a low view of sin. For instance, that's that's typically a liberal policy, the idea that people are all very good, uh, we all have a good heart, uh, the issue of sin, man's depravity, is not that prominent in theological liberalism. Um, so if, they have, if someone has a low view of sin, or they don't really believe in the literal, physical second return of Christ and the establishment of heaven on earth, the new heavens and new earth, if they don't believe that, or if Christ is not really the Lord— He's not, he doesn't really have all authority on heaven and on earth, or he's not even real. That, that's a liberal position, too. Then the only solution for dealing with sin in a fallen world is if, is if earthly rulers do it. So all humans have this desire to see. They know the world's broken, and they want to see the world fixed, and they want to see heaven on earth. They, want to, they have that yearning for, for the Garden of Eden again, for things to be back the way they were, to be put right. But if you don't have a savior who can do that, then your only hope is Caesar. Only he can do it. Only he can usher in the utopia, bring in heaven on earth, and make all things new, make all things right. So I do think that your theology is going to impact your your political views. If it doesn't, well, then there maybe there's some inconsistency there, or there's a disconnect going on. I know a lot of people that are like that. No one is perfectly consistent uh, with their views. Everyone has their blind spots, so but I do think that politics comes out of one's theology. How you view sin, how you view the nature of mankind, uh, is going to uh, impact your your political theology. Another example would be materialism. Uh, Karl Marx, uh, the uh, well-known uh, founder, one of the co-founders of communism, Marxism, right? He, he believed in, in materialism, that we're simply products of our environment. Humans are all products of the environment materially. So therefore, if you change the environment, you change the person. So if you want to recreate the new humanity, if you want to usher in the utopia, all you have to do is set up the environment perfectly. And if you put man in the proper environment, everything will be good. So that's where you get the idea of of restructuring society. If you tear down the old order and rebuild the new and put man in it, it's like rebuilding the Garden of Eden and placing man in the garden and telling him to flourish. Well, that can't happen if man is a sinner. Uh, So there's some very interesting religious and spiritual aspects to Marxism, but when you think about it beneath the surface, what, what it's saying there, 
uh, in the assumptions that are made. But anyways, that's just an example of how one's theology, your understanding of man and sin, is going to drive your, your politics. Now, the last thing I want to mention is the issue of common grace and brute facts and data. Um, well, common grace, also known as general revelation, how God reveals himself uh, in, in the created order in nature, is only half the equation. We, we do have the other half. We have special revelation. We have God speaking to us through the word. But all of it points to one law. There is one law of God, not two and not three. There's one law of God, and both nature and scripture point to that same law. They are not contradictory to each other or mutually exclusive. They're complementary. And I would also argue there's no such thing as quote-unquote brute facts. All facts are interpreted. Every fact that comes to us comes through one of our lenses, comes through our interpretive lens. Okay, so that's why two people can look at the same same data and they can see the same facts, okay, and they can have different conclusions. Why? Because they are interpreting their, that fact. They're trying to figure out, well, why is that fact a fact? Why is that the case? What's causing that fact? And what's the solution to that fact? So... I'm just going to make up a, a statistic here. But let's just say 70% of marriages end in divorce. Okay, or something like that. That's a, Let's just say it's a brute fact. But it's, it's interpreted. Because two people are going to say, okay, well, well, why? Okay, and there could be many reasons why. Okay, well, what's the solution to that? And now we have way different opinions on the solution to that. So no fact is in a vacuum, but all facts are interpreted. And... There are so many facts out there that it would require omniscience to be able to understand them all perfectly in relation to each other. And there's only one being that has omniscience. That's God. We, no matter how good we are at collecting data, will never have the omniscience. So what we need is guidance from the one who does. We need guidance from the one who knows everything. And that guidance is from God and from his word. So just uh, some thoughts there. Let's, uh, let's continue. Well, Mike, as a Democrat and a, a Reformed confessional Christian, I, I often tease my Christian friends that I may be to the left of them politically, but I'm to the right of them theologically, and it drives them crazy. Um, but as James Boyce pointed out, if you're an Arminian, you're stealing a little bit of, uh, of glory from uh, God when it comes to, to those, those great issues. Um, I, I agree with Dan. I mean, I would say at the outset that many times we hear, well, you, you two kingdom folks, you Reformed folks— say that biblical principles should play no role in, in developing a coherent set of public policy. And I don't understand that to be at all what the two kingdom doctrine says. Uh, I believe that um, our biblical faith can indeed inform how we think about public policy. Well, it should certainly inform how we think about public policy. It's not that it can, uh, but it should. Sorry, I just want to throw that in there. It can and it should. At the same time, See there, he said the same. He said exactly right. That's right. Not just can, but should. And I would agree with him on that point. So let's see how he how he fleshes that out a little bit more. I'm very leery of folk who want to create sort of a political apostles' creed, some sort of list of uh, identified, enumerated, specific public policy prescriptions that all Christians are supposed to uh, confess. You mean something like the Ten Commandments? Like, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Is that what you're, is that what he's referring to? I mean, I think I understand the, the idea of what he's getting at, that 
I guess in Apostles' Creed, maybe he in his mind he's talking about something like immigration policy or or something like that. But but in a sense though, there is there should be a basic. I mean, what did Jesus say? You'll know them by their fruits. So if someone thinks that it's okay to commit adultery and murder and steal, uh, there's a problem with that. And and so I do think that there is like how you live uh, indicates where your heart is. All right. So um, I'm not saying that we have to create an Apostles' Creed in the sense that like it's a Republican Party platform or Democratic Party platform, but the Ten Commandments is awfully close to that. All right, we'll continue. Uh, I agree with Dan that the state is a common grace institution, and we approach these issues through the lenses of both general and specific revelation. Well, I want to... One second before he goes on. Uh, the state is a common grace institution. That's true uh, in that its job is to punish evil, which is the third use of the law. But again, God's revelation, both special and general, should nature and scripture, should guide the state in trying to figure out what is evil and how to punish it. So again, it's common grace, but that's not saying that the state can never look to Scripture as, as a guide for what it means to punish evil. You have to know what evil is. And yeah, there's some semblance of the understanding and knowledge of evil in nature and on man's heart and man's conscience as an image bearer of God. But it's, it's not as clear and it's often distorted, whereas Scripture corrects that. Scripture helps the moral compass to point north again. But without that, you're kind of stumbling around in the dark, okay, trying to feel your way through everything. So, I, yeah, I, I think it's very clear that, that both Scripture and nature can be used uh, within the state for wisdom and guidance on how to uh, proceed with public policy. Though it's important to remember that before we would ever label a particular public policy prescription as, quote, Christian, unquote, we need to remember that many of these debates ultimately are not about ends, but the preferred means to reach those ends. So, for example, all Christians should affirm that uh, the Bible speaks at length about issues of justice or about protecting the widow, the alien, the orphan. Uh, but well-meaning Christians can have very different approaches on the best way to extend justice to marginalized groups. And we sort of run off the rails when we take the party platforms that appear every four years at the convention and say, well, because my party platform speaks to a specific means of extending justice to the widow, the alien, or the orphan, that God must have endorsed that particular platform. And that is bad theology and, uh, and dangerous politics, frankly. I'm going to stop there. Um, they're having their break as well. But I really do think that a lot of that is just plain, plain wrong. The Bible gives us plenty of examples of means regarding justice. So what he's talking about there is the means and the ends. So we all want the same goal, right? We all want justice. We all want peace. We all want prosperity. We all want those things. And that's true. Okay, so well, for the most part, I think that's true. Both left and the right want, at the end of the day, they both want justice. And he's saying that the Bible does not give us the means to acquire that. And I would say that's a little, I would really disagree with that very strongly. Um, for example, people want justice, right? Everyone wants justice. Well, what does the Bible say? 
How does one acquire justice? You need two or three witnesses before you can convict somebody. Well, that's, that's the means, isn't it? That's the means of attaining justice. Is, it, is that perfect justice on the world? Well, no, but God's not telling mankind to, to get perfect justice because only God knows the hearts of, of men. So you might have a situation where a person commits a crime, but there are no witnesses. All right, well, he gets away with it, and that's true. Um, and that's, but that's okay because in the, at the end of the day, God will bring ultimate justice in his time. So, but God has told us, Two or three witnesses is the requirement. Now, what if you just have one witness? One witness Is that enough? Well, if you believe so, you end up in a very dangerous spot because we get things like the Salem Witch Trials or the Soviet Union, where, where one person who doesn't like you can say that they witnessed you doing something or saying something bad, and then you get arrested and thrown into the gulag, or you get put in jail, or you get executed on the testimony of one witness who's, who was trying to purposely use the government against you. You know, maybe they had a grudge against you, or they were angry, or whatever the case may be. So you don't want that. You don't want one witness to be able to condemn somebody uh, without uh, corroborating uh, evidence and witnesses. So the Bible tells us what that means looks like. Another example would be the laws regarding animals that attack. Uh, It means that if we have an animal that is prone to attack humans, we're held responsible if the animal attacks and we do nothing to prevent it. So I'm referring to the, the law regarding an ox that gores people. In Scripture, if you have an ox that you know has, has gored people in the past, has attacked people, and is prone to attacking people, but you do nothing to prevent it, you don't fence him in, you don't tie him up, nothing, and he gores somebody, then you are held liable for the damage that that ox caused. And that has very much implications for today regarding, let's say, dogs that bite people uh, and attack uh, when people are walking by in the neighborhood. So, uh, you know, it means putting putting fences or around our pools, right? Uh, loving our neighbor also means not seducing his wife while he's gone. So, you know, we all want to love our neighbors, right? We want love. Well, what does that look like? It means not cheating on your wife. Okay, it means, it means not coveting your neighbor's wife. Oh, okay. So God gives both the ends and the means in accomplishing, quote-unquote, justice. So to say that the Bible doesn't have the means in there, I think that's just plain wrong because you can get quite dangerous because even many, many bad guys throughout the entire history of humanity, they all want justice too. But their view of justice was very skewed and led to many people dying. All right, so now I'm going to go to another clip uh, a few, uh, few minutes later here, after they get back from their, from their break. Why is the distinction between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this world important, first of all, for the church's vocation, secondly, for the Christian's vocation, and then thirdly, for the state's vocation? Let's do each of those. First of all, for the church's vocation, why is it important that we distinguish these two kingdoms so that the church will fulfill its proper vocation? The answer is, from my perspective, is that there's no one else, there's no other institution that God has ordained to do what the church does. So if the church wants to do public policy or engage in politics or do any number of things that the federal government and state governments have all sorts of resources to do, maybe not better, but certainly many more resources to do, the state 
cannot actually do what the church does, which is proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Maybe states in the past have tried to do that with state churches, but we no longer have that arrangement. So if the church is going to abdicate that responsibility to try to take on other responsibilities, then this really important institution that God has given to his to his people for this particular age in redemptive history, that task is going to be undone. Well, I want to say also just, yeah, if the church wants to, he's saying if the church wants to engage in politics or public policy, the state can't do the church's job. So they can't reverse their roles, right? So you know, the church can't say, oh, I want to do your job, state, and how about you swap with me? And, and then you do, you do my job and I'll do yours. Well, I don't think any theonomist is saying that. I mean, and I, and I know they're not specifically mentioning theonomy here, but uh, those who advocate for theonomy are not saying that the church should set up firing squads or executioners to do the role of bearing the sword. The church doesn't do politics, but it should teach and disciple politicians. All right, let's continue. To add to Daryl's uh, insight, the risk of trivializing the mission of the church and reducing it to just another civil society interest group is a risk we have to always keep our eyes on. The risk of the gospel being trivialized uh, and becoming just a kind of political plank is, is a, um, a horrible risk that we must avoid at all costs. In your question, Mike, you identified, I think, the key distinction. The church as the church, as distinct from Christians and their this-worldly calling, and it is so freeing to see that as a Christian in my this-worldly calling, I have a great menu of possible ways to be involved, including being very active politically, writing, um, suggesting very specific policy prescriptions. Uh, some of us are indeed in that business as Christians. But the church, as the church, has a very specific mandate. It's in Holy Scripture, and its mandate is not to do politics. It is to hold forth Christ as the only way that sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. And it, when it extends beyond that writ, that biblical mandate, it's left its charter behind. Well, I want to say, uh, yes, the church, well, first of all, as a Christian, you have a great menu of possibilities to get involved, right? Yes, you can volunteer, local soup kitchen, you can run for, run for office, you can do all kinds of things. And I would agree. And the church has a very specific mandate not to do politics. And I agree. Although church members can and should hold public office if they want to. Okay, well, that's fair. And then he says earlier that the gospel uh, is a risk of being trivialized and becoming a political plank. Well, again, that's not what theonomists want. That's not what those advocating for God's law in the civil sphere want. The church does not have a mandate to do parenting, right? That's the family's job, okay? The church does not have a mandate to do business, but the church does have a responsibility to disciple parents on how to be better parents and disciple business leaders on how to run their businesses in a godly and moral manner. So the elders don't spank my children for me, but they do teach me whether or not I should spank my children or discipline my children. The elders don't run my business, but they do t teach me whether I should pay my employees on time or whether I could, I should cheat by cutting corners in order to save a couple bucks, or whether I should lie on my taxes. Okay, so so the, the the church has a very important role to play in teaching and discipling the nations, and the same is true 
with regards to public policy. Those who have the sword need to know how to use that sword properly. And the church has the, the teaching, the guidebook, on how to disciple those sword bearers, on how to not use their sword so destructively that they cut everyone's head off. But they use it properly and with precision and accuracy. So I, I, what they're really attacking here is kind of a straw man. And I don't really know anybody, even in the theonomy camp, who would say that the, the church should be the one doing politics. And that's not, what, that's not at all uh, what, what we're saying. So let's continue. When you guys go to church, you both want to hear the same thing. You want to be united by the cross of Christ through word and sacrament. You want Christ to be the tie that binds you together. The last thing you want is to have to go to a church with people who follow the policies that you're involved in writing. The other thing that's not just Democrat-Republican divide, and this is where the American church has become very provincial, because when believers gather on the Lord's Day, they, they gather with a whole host of angels and saints from other parts of the world. And at academic institutions, oftentimes there are international students who go to worship at some American churches. And so to have any sort of references to American political developments makes no sense even to a Canadian. Yeah, even to have the American flag up there. Right. And Charles Hodge had a great point about this in debates about whether the Northern Presbyterian Church should support the federal side in the Civil War. He said, Basically, to have an American flag in the church is the equivalent of singing the Star Spangled Banner at the administration of the Lord's Supper. So, it's which, like, which is probably lost on us today, since there have probably been examples of both several times a year. Yeah, and my, <laughs> one of my favorites of these is to show how bad it can get. I, I remember seeing a, a service from a prominent television preacher. It was a July 4th service, and they were singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. They got the wrong war and the wrong... Um, song to go with the July 4th in Independence. but And they were also, being in a southern church, they were kind of singing the wrong side of that struggle. <laughs> okay, I know they kind of went off on a tangent there, but I mean, I would agree that I personally don't think that the American flag has any business, uh, any flag really being in the in the church where we worship. I don't really want the, the flag up in front because we're not our attention should be on God. We should not be distracted by those things, and and uh, we're not worshiping any civil religion or civil civil state. So, so certainly, I am perfectly fine not having flags in the sanctuary or where the where people gather to worship. Okay, I don't need to to make some kind of a statement up there. Although, I would say that just because you have you might have foreigners that come in from other countries worshiping with you. And they don't really care about what's going on in your political sphere. Uh, that doesn't really, that shouldn't really affect anything because there are there are countries right now that are going through civil wars or uh, military coups. And you know, if I was going over to those countries worshiping with the believers there, that's okay. Like for example, if I went over to China right now and worshipped in one of the uh, Chinese churches there, in the house churches, and and one of the pastors brings up a recent issue, a recent uh, decree given by uh, President Xi Jinping uh, regarding, you know, what Christians can and cannot do, or a new a new policy prescription, uh, trying to uh, root out the Christians and get rid of the church. I mean, that doesn't really impact me per se as an American citizen, but 
I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna suggest that they shouldn't talk about that or that shouldn't be part of uh, the context of their of their sermons. You know, if if it's relevant to the sermon, then that's fine. And, you know, I might be lost. It might be lost on me, but but that's okay because every church has its own cultural issues that it's dealing with at that time. You know, it could be idolatry, it could be witchcraft, it could be it could be anything that seems to be popping up in that culture that might not be popping up in mine. All right, so let's just continue. Mike, to your second question, um, what what do we look for in a church? I mean, to use sort of a sports analogy, I'm uh, I'm from New York originally. I'm a big fan of the New York Yankees. Thank you. You know, if my car needs to be repaired and I go to the mechanic, I really don't care who his home team is. I don't care if he's a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan. I mean, as long as he can fix my car, if he's really good at what he does, that's what matters. So, But you do care if he tries to cheat you. And if he lies to you just to get more money out of you, you do care about that. So let's just, uh, just keep that in mind. When I go to church on Sunday, I really don't care whether the minister or the associate minister or the choir director or the head of youth education, what their politics are, provided they are really good at what they do. Well, okay. That's interesting. I, I have a big problem with, with that right there. Um, you don't really care if the minister, choir director, or head of youth education, what their politics are. Well, again, this might be showing the datedness of this of this podcast episode, although they did air it again last month. So it's 12 years old, but they re-aired it. So obviously they, they, you know, they believe it's relevant still today. But my goodness, you better, you better care. You better care what the youth director thinks. You better care if the youth director thinks that there are more than two genders, or if that if, if the youth director thinks that children can pick and choose what gender they want to be. You also better care if the youth director thinks that nothing is wrong with same-sex marriage or homosexual behavior. So these are public policy prescriptions now, all right? They're not just issues of sin. It's, it's, it's becoming public policy. Uh, you better care if the youth director thinks that every white person's a racist and there's systemic racism all throughout the church and that your, your children, if you happen to be uh, of European descent, white children are all part of the problem and they need to repent of their whiteness. You, you, better, you better believe that's an issue. So, so your politics do matter because they reflect your theology. And I, I just don't see how you can get away with that statement uh, today in today's day and age. And it, it's always been the case that it does matter. Maybe it didn't matter 12 years ago because both sides were pretty close in some of the key moral issues, but not so much uh, anymore. I want to jump now to another section where they go on to talk about uh, the relation between church and state. So they'll spend a few minutes kind of going off on a, on a little bit of a tangent. Uh, they're talking about uh, Bill Clinton and the scandal that happened in the White House and how some of the churches responded to that. And that's not really what my focus is on today. So I want to jump to this next clip uh, just a few minutes uh, later. Here we go. It's interesting how both sides, in the, in the rhetoric on both sides, you hear lots of invocations of divine providence, this sort of providential sense of American history. Remember Bill Clinton in his uh, speeches talking about America's covenant with God. Certainly George W. Bush has referred with some elaboration on America's manifest destiny practically in bringing freedom to the rest of the world as a sort of divine mission. Whether it's in terms of America's covenant with God, which you could hear on the left or the right, or it's in terms of this mission that used to characterize the left, frankly, of bringing the whole world under the dominion of the social gospel. Is this 
the commission that Christ has given to his church. It's clearly not. And, and one thing that I find ironic, troubling, uh, concerning is the following. Folks may recall sort of that old expression from years gone by that you often heard, at least in the churches that I grew up in. Uh, it said sort of in, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, love. And where we are today is those have been inverted. Uh, the Christian right or the Christian left now defines the essentials often in political terms, mm. and they demand unanimity of view on whatever their pet political prescriptions are. Well, I want to say there, um, earlier, Horton, Michael Horton uh, mentioned, uh, is this the commission that Christ has given his church? And I would say, well, uh, discipling the nations includes all the various jobs and positions that exist within those nations, from farmers to emperors, so from the least to the greatest. So the discipling the nations in- includes teaching them how to do their, to do their job. And then uh, with regards to the essentials that uh, Neil's bringing up, uh, yeah, there should be essentials regarding doctrinal beliefs. But again, what's one of the, what are some of the essentials? There's two genders. Okay. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Okay. So those, those are like, that's part of our confession of faith at, at Hilltown Baptist Church, that if you wish to join as a member, you affirm those things. I consider those things to be pretty essential. And so do all the elders on the elder board. So if you don't believe those things, then we're going to have to talk about how, you know, how can you be part of this church if you, if you don't believe that God created man and woman uh, in his image and things like that. So I, I do think there are some places where essential, certain things are essential and certain things are not. Well, let's continue. The non-essentials have become doctrine. And so the same Christians of either political party that assume or demand political uniformity will say, oh, well, we have a wide variety of views on the atonement or on sanctification or on justification, and, and we need to extend grace. Christians don't have to agree. And so those categories that uh, historically the Reformers would have described as at the very core of, of the Christian doctrine are now sort of out of the circumference, and, and we're extended a grace there that um, is sort of ironic compared to uh, political discussions. No, that's a, mm. that's a, I mean, one of the things that I find really frustrating is the idea that Mike let off with about to be conservative religiously is to be conservative politically. But if you look at conservative doctrines, say virgin birth, the atonement, and and then ask, well, what do those have to do with health care policy or strong national defense or things like that? There's no clear correlation. So, I mean, it's a further point about how different the kingdoms are and how different their concerns are. Well, I'm going to stop there for a second. Um, that's I think that's apples and oranges because— He's looking at conservative doctrines like virgin birth and atonement. But like I mentioned earlier, doctrine of sin, doctrine of man's nature, his depravity, uh, all those things do have a strong implication on various policies. Um, I mentioned before uh, the idea of Marxism. So there are, there are conservative doctrines that directly affect our political, political views. If you believe that humans are inherently good and that problems are only the fault of society being structured badly— then your attitude will not be that people need to repent of their sins. We just have to reorder society and things will get better. And if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord and that he's real and returning, then, then you're going to look for an earthly ruler to fix this uh, broken world. All right, we'll continue. But to actually assume that conservative 
theology leads to conservative politics, whatever those politics may be, is just simply mind-numbing. Well, <laughs> okay, that's... I, I don't think it's not at all mind-numbing. I think it's very perfectly reasonable. Uh, like like I said, I think there is a connection between one's theology and one's political political views. And, and, and many people are often not consistent. So they'll have a conservative theology, but a very liberal uh, political uh, political philosophy. I don't think it can always last that way. I think eventually, as you grow as a Christian, you begin to see how God's law applies in your life and and in society and in the church and business and education and the family. So now, do, do those things change overnight? Well, no. I mean, you could have a person who's a, a father and a husband. He he becomes a Christian. Does that mean he immediately stops? Uh, being a bad, you know, some, you know, somewhat abusive. You know, maybe he still struggles with being with being angry. Uh, some of his decisions are a little bit, you know, still a little skewed regarding how he disciplines his children. So, is he going to become a perfect father right away? Well, well, no, he's not. But that doesn't mean that he's not trying. That there's not a goal he should aim for. There is a goal he should aim for uh, with that. All right. There's only one more clip I want to play, and then we'll uh, move on to Calvin's Institutes. Uh, and this clip is uh, uh, towards the end of this episode uh, with uh, what Michael Horton has to say about what Calvin says. President Bush's State of the Union address for 2004, he proclaimed, the cause we serve is right because it is the cause of all mankind. Earlier in 2003, in a speech to the National Endowment for Democracy, he argued that the United States seeks, quote, to promote liberty around the world because Liberty is both the plan of heaven for humanity and the best hope for progress here on earth. The advance of freedom is the calling of our time, the calling of our country, the design of our nature, and the direction of history. And as I read those comments, I think of what Calvin says in the Institutes, where he really reflects on the diversity of cultures. And he says, we should certainly not expect any modern nation to have the same laws as the laws of Israel. Those were unique to that particular people whom God took into his safekeeping. It doesn't matter how different our constitutions differ from the laws of Moses, or even, he says, among themselves, so long as the principle of equity, love, natural law is observed. And so he believed that people, because they're made in God's image, even though fallen, could figure out the best way of preserving justice and, and so forth. But he says it doesn't have to cash out even as a particular form of government. All right, well, that's the clip I wanted to play where uh, Dr. Horton talks about Calvin's quote there. And now that we've gone through that episode from the White Horse Inn, or at least those portions that I thought to be the most relevant, I want to spend some time looking at John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, specifically his section on government. Now, if you remember, last episode we looked at Pastor Mark Dever, and Jonathan Lehman, their episode from the Nine Marks Ministry, and they quoted from John Calvin uh, in his section on government, and they basically made the argument that that citation favored their position, or was a uh, basically a disproving of theonomy. And as we just heard a few minutes ago, uh, Dr. Michael Horton and the White Horse Inn podcast, they did the same thing. They quoted the same section from his work. Now, I want to look at a few sections before that quotation in Calvin's Institutes and a little bit after that to get the context. And if you, if you look at, at Calvin's works, it's in uh, Book 4, Chapter 20 of the Institutes. 
he says a couple of important things that will help us to get the context correct. So first, he says that being part of the government is not a sinful or polluted thing for Christians. Now, that was an argument that some uh, people at the time of the Reformation were making, that Christians have no business being in the government uh, and that they should stay out. Calvin was against that, that position, and he believed that Christians have a duty to be involved if they're so called to do so. Now, he goes on to talk about the purpose of government in section 3, and I want to read this quote to you. So, quote, Its object is not merely like those things to enable men to breathe, eat, drink, and be warmed, though it certainly includes all these, while it enables them to live together. This, I say, is not its only object, but it is that no idolatry, no blasphemy against the name of God, no calumnies against his truth, nor other offenses to religion break out and be disseminated among the people, that the public quiet be not disturbed, that every man's property be kept secure, that men may carry on innocent commerce with each other, that honesty and modesty be cultivated, in short, that a public form of religion may exist among Christians and humanity among men. Now that's from section 3 of book 4 of his Institutes. Now, what you see there is Calvin gives the role of the government to do more than just protect property. He actually suggests that it should be punishing idolatry and blasphemy and heresy, which I imagine uh, both the White Horse Inn and the Nine Marks podcast would be very much against. Remember, they quoted Calvin as an argument against theonomy, against God's law, against really using scripture to kind of directly influence the civil government. Now, Calvin's arguing for something that not everyone would agree with, and I don't agree with everything that Calvin says, but I do want to point out that Calvin's not on their side if they're going to use him against the idea of God's law being part of the civil society. I mean, quite frankly, if Calvin is arguing that the government should punish heresy and blasphemy and idolatry, that is very close to theonomy and probably further that many theonomists would prefer to go. Now, he goes on to talk about in section four that civil authority is one of the most sacred and lawful stations in mortal life. And he says that if if a king becomes a Christian, the king should not just set aside his authority and become a private citizen, but he should seek to uh, submit himself to the lordship of Christ. And that is actually found in section 5. And I want to read this quote to you as well. Here's what he says. For when David says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the, of the earth, kiss the son, lest he be angry. He does not order them to lay aside their authority and return to private life, but to make the power with which they are invested subject to Christ, that he may rule over all. So again, Calvin would argue, magistrates, should submit to Christ and be sure to use their authority in the name of Christ. He goes on in section 6 to say that magistrates are ministers of divine justice, and they ought not to bring iniquity or sin within their judgments, and they ought not to create evil laws or evil decrees. And in fact, they are to exhibit an image of divine providence, guardianship, goodness, benevolence, and justice. And... They're held accountable. If they sin, 
Not only is injury done to the one whom they sin against, but also against God, because they represent God in their civil authority. Now, he goes on a couple sections later to section 8. He does discuss a little bit about the form of government. He mentions the importance of checks and balances, of restraining evil. He goes on to say that there is no happier form of government than one where liberty is framed with moderation. So, in a way, an ordered liberty, liberty, there's structure, there's freedom, and that magistrates should strive hard to the utmost to preserve that liberty and to prevent it from being taken away. Now, again, he would probably go a bit further than I would go or or many theonomists would go because he would argue that magistrates are supposed to protect both tables of the law. That is, the first four commandments, specifically those commandments that relate to how humans interact with God, and then the last six commandments, the ones about loving your neighbor. Now, he would say that all of them, the civil magistrate needs to enforce. That includes uh, the first commandment, having no other gods, no idols, uh, no taking the Lord's name in vain, honoring the Sabbath. So those are things that he thinks the government should get involved in. Now, a lot of theonomists would not go that far. And certainly, I, I can't imagine Dr. Horton or Pastor Dever or Pastor Lehman going as far as to affirm that as well. So, so again, it's kind of weird. If they're going to say that Calvin's on their side, it's awkward when Calvin is going so much further towards theonomy than they probably would feel comfortable doing. So how, how are they treating him properly? How are they using his words in their proper context? I don't, I don't think they are. So anyways... He goes on now to the main issue, the actual quotation itself that both podcasts were making. That's found in section 14, where Calvin talks about what kind of laws should exist. Now, I want to read that entire section because I think that's going to be key in making sure that we get Calvin right on this. So here's what he says, quote, in states, the thing next in importance to the magistrates is laws, the strongest sinews of government or as Cicero calls them after Plato, the soul, without which the office of the magistrate cannot exist. Just as, on the other hand, laws have no vigor without the magistrate, hence nothing could be said more truly than that the law is a dumb magistrate, and the magistrate a living law. As I have undertaken to describe the laws by which Christian polity is to be governed, there is no reason to expect from me a long discussion on the best kind of laws, The subject is of vast extent and belongs not to this place. I will only briefly observe, in passing, what the laws are which may be piously used with reference to God and duly administered among men. This I would rather have passed in silence, were I not aware that many dangerous errors are here committed. For there are some who deny that any commonwealth is rightly framed which neglects the law of Moses, and is ruled by the common law of nations. How perilous and seditious these views are, let others see. For me, it is enough to demonstrate that they are stupid and false. We must attend to the well-known division which distributes the whole law of God, as promulgated by Moses, into the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial law. And we must attend to each of these parts in order to understand how far they do 
or do not pertain to us. Now, I'll stop there. Um, so what's he saying? Well, clearly he says he affirms the division of the Old Testament law into moral, ceremonial, and civil. And he says that we must study each one in order to determine how far each of them pertains to us today. Now that, my friends, in a, in a nutshell, is theonomy. That's what I've been saying. I'm trying to trying to describe this episode and the last episode, is that from what I understand of theonomy, it is attempting to properly apply the laws of the Old Testament to today and to study each one correctly in their context. Now, what Calvin is arguing against are those who say that the Mosaic laws to the letter have to be enforced and instituted in order for any nation to be considered a lawful or legal entity. Um, and there, there are some extremists that went that far. And Calvin is saying, no, no, that's not, that's not the whole point here. You have to differentiate between the moral, civil, and ceremonial. He'll go on in section 15 to give uh, an example of how there can be variety among nations uh, within limits, and that each nation has liberty to enact certain laws, but they're all to be tested by the rule of charity. Now, in section 16, it becomes even more evident what Calvin's getting at. He says that the law of God is the moral law, and it is the testimony of both the natural law and that which is engraved on the minds of men. And But they all point to the same law, the same law giver. And Calvin gives uh, an example of how there can be some variety amongst nations. He says, all laws alike avenge murder with blood, but the kinds of death are different. And he'll go on to say that we see that amid this diversity, they all tend to the same end, for they all with one mouth declare against those crimes which are condemned by the eternal law of God, murder, theft, adultery, and false witness, though they agree not as to the mode of punishment. So he says, just because they have different ways of punishing people, doesn't mean that they are disobeying uh, the law of Moses or the law of God. Not, not at all. They are fulfilling it. And he goes on to say that it is absurd to think that just because they have different means of punishments, that they are somehow insulting God's law or, or, or failing it in some way. So at the end of the day, Calvin is responding to a particular extreme position regarding the exact letter of the Mosaic Law, but he is very firmly, I would argue, in the camp of theonomy. I mean, Calvin is saying we need to apply the Old Testament laws and see where they fit today. We need to recognize distinctions between moral, civil, and ceremonial, and we have to understand there's some variety uh, amongst how nations are going to punish those who, who break those laws. And that there's going to be there's going to be that kind of variety, but it's not a violation of God's law for that to exist. And of course, Calvin goes even further to say that the government should punish heresy, blasphemy, and idolatry, which again many theonomists would would say it may, might be a bit too far. But certainly, I, I can only imagine that would be too far for the um, Mark Dever, Jonathan Lehman, or Dr. Michael Horton. So, anyways, while theonomists would differ. On, on certain things, I think that Calvin is clearly within the theonomist camp and that um, those, those, those other men in, the, in their podcasts 
we're taking them out of context. Now, maybe they would consider themselves, if they're quoting Calvin and if they affirm what Calvin says in the Institutes, maybe they would define themselves as theonomists. But um, I really do think that what they are attacking in their podcast was a fringe or radical aspect of theonomy that I don't think represents uh, most of who would call themselves theonomists. And I think it's it's really unfair or it's a disservice to their listeners that they're attacking a straw man and either they're doing it out of ignorance of what theonomy really is or out of some hostility towards anything that would even smell of theonomy. Maybe, you know, just that, that word doesn't, doesn't sit well with them for whatever reason. But at the end of the day, if we're going to affirm Calvin, we're in line with him if we say that we're looking at how the Mosaic law should be applied today. And there's going to be variation on the exact mode of punishment. And we need to do our homework in discerning how the ceremonial, judicial, and, and moral laws apply today and tomorrow. So anyways, that's really all I wanted to cover uh, on today's episode. I know we've, we've gone through a lot. Um, if you have any follow-up questions or concerns or feedback or pushback, by all means, please uh, email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook at thegbgpodcast. You can just message me there. I'm also on Twitter. So again, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for your time. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Until next time, take care and God bless.